Hi, everybody. This is Joe DeBose again for another episode of the Trauma Cast. I'm joined today by two distinguished guests, good friends. The first is a New York trauma icon, voted New York Magazine Man of the Year in 2016. Not really, but he is still a great guy, Dr. Sheldon Tepperman. And he's coming to us from New York. And then, of course, Matt Martin, everybody's American hero, former retired Army surgeon, just an all-around great guy. So it's great to have both of you with us. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Joe. Good to be here. So I gathered both of you for this podcast because we are living in interesting times. And, of course, COVID is on everyone's thoughts and minds. And both of you have some experience there. Uh, Sheldon, obviously, with dealing with this crisis in New York, and Matt as a, a responder, help, if you will, to traveling from his own native institution uh, to help out. So with your permission, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions so we can all kind of get our heads around what you folks are, have experienced and are currently still experiencing. Sheldon, let me start with you. Take us back a month or more in the past. When, when did you really start to appreciate that COVID was going to change the way you practice medicine for the foreseeable future? Yeah, you know, so I was thinking about that question. And uh, so uh, Governor Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, who I think is doing an excellent job, was on CNN last night, as he often is with his brother. And, you know, he said, you know, when this thing was in Wuhan, you know, what made us all think that it wasn't going to come to the United States? It's a complicated question, you know, because, you know, you think that's just never going to happen here. So I, I think we had it in our minds that it would eventually make it to our shores, but it was an order of magnitude question. So to your question, um, just as it was about to come to New York, uh, so I'm friendly with uh, a wonderful friend, Karen Brohe, so I'm sure you guys know Karen, who uh, runs uh, the major London trauma system. And, you know, Karen and, uh, and his wife, Karen's family and my family are, are buddies. And Karen and I did a WhatsApp within a day or two of the first case in New York. And um, he he said to me, get ready. And I said, oh, no, we're, you know, we're getting ready and we're, we're uh, you know, we're thinking about it. And, and, and he, you know, and I said, well, we're getting our protocols together. And we're, we're talking about the ethics and, you know, we should have all that ready to go in about a month. And he's like, you're going to need it. This, the ethics protocols, you know, not, you know, uh, who lives, who dies. I mean, it didn't really work that way, obviously. But, you know, choices, triage choices. He said to me, you're going to need it this week. And he was right. I mean, it, it went from zero to a tsunami in about seven days. So that would be the answer to my question, to that question. Yeah. Okay. Matt, you saw all this unfolding in New York and uh, obviously uh, you're a guy with military background. You've had to, you've been ordered in the past to go to hot spots and deal with strange things, but you felt for some reason compelled to travel across the country and join Dr. Tepperman to help out with the COVID response. Tell me a little bit about how did that conversation go with your leadership in San Diego and your family? And how did you make that connection to travel up there to find a place to go help? <laughs> yeah, that's those were interesting conversations, to say the least. Um, and and I'll actually credit Sheldon. Uh, you know, I set up coming to New York with Sheldon, who uh, you know they worked their magic. Uh, and, and after we decided I was going, I think it took a grand total of forty-eight hours in a two-page form to get my credentials approved there. 
So, so one thing is it's nice to see what you can do when you decide to cut out a bunch of often needless red tape. Uh, actually, this was I, I, Sheldon and I had been, what were we talking about every couple of nights before this really hit? Yes. And, and, you know, it was, it was mostly those conversations where I heard, you know, he, he just said it went from zero to a hundred. And, and I heard that on those conversations and, you know, and on one of those conversations, uh, he was just telling me how they, they were overrun. They were overrun and, you know, there was no help coming that they could see. Uh, and, and that's when I thought, well, you know, this is what I, this is what I do. This is what I train for. I should be out there. And the other factor to that is we fortunately were not overrun here in San Diego or in most of California. Um, so, so that decision was relatively straightforward. Uh, and, and I was able to arrange some call coverage so I could do a couple weeks out there. Uh, and I'll just say my, my leadership was very supportive. Uh, you know, they, they, it initially raised some eyebrows about, well, why would you want to do that? But once I made it clear I wanted to do it, they, they were very supportive with the caveat that if things start to heat up here or if one of our group here went down with COVID, because we'd already had one of our surgeons who did go out with COVID for a couple weeks, then I would have to get on a plane and come back. Uh, conversations with my family were, you know, also interesting. Uh, you know, my, my wife has been through five deployments. So, so I kind of sold this as this will be the shortest deployment you'll ever have to deal with. Uh, but, but, you know, she, she was very concerned and we had a long, a long talk about it. Uh, you know, but in the end, you know, the credit to her is she said, you know, yeah, this is the right thing to do. And, and I support you and, you know, I'll take care of things here. You, you just got home a couple of days ago, I think, correct? Or not very long ago. Uh, uh, yeah. Monday night. Did you approach that coming home? Did you uh, obviously you were around COVID patients all the time in New York? Did you self isolate or anything when you came home, or 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 just sent them free long enough that you felt that you were, it was safe at home? So so actually, I I have not actually physically seen my family yet. Um, so we I'm I'm quarantining for five days away from home, which ends tomorrow morning. Okay. So, so I'll be going home tomorrow uh, to see Becky and the kids, and looking forward to that. Uh, I've seen them, you know, by face face uh, time and Skype, but haven't seen them in person yet. Well, I know, I know they're going to look forward to that. Let's uh, let's. Shift hey, up. hey, Joe. Can yes, I, sir. I just need to chime in there for a second. Yep. You know, um, there are uh, sometimes people use uh, platitudes, and they uh, they blow smoke. But I just have to say, in in the instance of, of Colonel Matt Martin, who you know, who is uh, you know, I've said uh, before, is a gentle giant. I mean, Matt did something that was so courageous and so generous that I, I just have to take a moment to observe it. I mean, we were really underwater, and I, you know, as a leader, you know, all of my bosses had had gotten COVID. And I was left to lead, um, you know, a, a wonderful and brave group of, of surgeons and nurses taking care of five COVID IVUs, uh, ICUs completely by myself. And I was really, I really felt uh, set adrift. And, and my friend, uh, Matt Martin, came across the country, you know, I think for two reasons. I think he, he came out of a sense of patriotism and, 
No one can challenge Matt Martin's patriotism. And he also came because of, of uh, friendship, because of his friendship to me. And, uh, and the nation should be for every grateful, as I certainly will be. Well, I, I will tell you, Sheldon, knowing Matt a long time, too, he promoted me to colonel. I, I will echo those thoughts, and I'm not surprised one bit. Uh, yeah. What I will do is now turn to you. You've talked about being underwater, overrun. I've used a lot of, I've seen, heard a lot of terms used. And in that phrase, within this COVID onslaught, if you will, you have had to learn some hard lessons over the last couple of weeks. Um, and you're probably week, certainly weeks ahead of the rest of the country at the time of this taping. What would you tell the providers at the hospitals that have not yet seen a surge but might expect one in the near future? How can they prepare themselves in their care environments? Well, for one thing, I would not wish this on my worst enemy, let alone my wonderful friends and colleagues. So let's just say that first. Um, you know, and, and Matt and I have talked, you know, so many times about why this thing got of, got out of control in New York. And so Matt has an interesting theory that it has to do with the subway system, because our subway system is, is amongst the oldest and um, the most crowded in the world. And, and I also think it had something to do with the, um, the airports. So, um, so certainly, it's a little easier to predict if you're in a population center with that kind of density. And then, you know, I don't know how I say this politically correctly, if you have a stupid, if you have stupid political leaders, this thing is coming your way. <laughs> right? If they believe in the tooth fairy and magical thinking, it's much more likely that you're going to have a surge. Getting that, having gotten that out of the way, so a good way to you know prepare. And I, it's funny when when this thing was coming, I was having lots of conversations with uh, you know our wonderful friend um, Mike Rotundo, who's about three hundred miles north of us in Rochester. And I kept saying, "Prepare. There's not. You can't possibly do enough. You can't possibly do enough." And I think that's probably good advice. So you should game out, you know, doubling and tripling your ICUs. So, like you should physically do that and then game out doing that again <laughs> and then maybe you'll pre be prepared and you know that means how do you do the command and control how do you do the supplies how do you do how do you you know do the the things that are well not so simple but the simplest things get the ivs out of the room maybe get the ventilator heads out of the room you know how, how do you do all of that for two, three, four, five, six more ICUs? How do you figure out how do you keep, how do you keep your people safe? How do you figure out how to rotate your people so that they don't get exhausted? Again, the, the supply chain thing for the whole thing, you need to go through it all physically, not just in your head, and then do it again to understand what happens if you do get overrun. You cannot possibly over prepare for this thing and when you are staring at it it is just a monster once you're inside of it once you're inside of it it is too late to prepare well let's let's flip this back to matt so matt you've deployed multiple times we've talked about that already today um and you certainly had to step in and assume care of some patients in an environment where the staff there are weary and worn out um how did what you saw and experienced when you arrived in New York it compared to the experience of kind of reporting to a combat support hospital in the middle of operations? Uh, 
Yeah, well, let me first say ar- arriving and walking through JFK where you you literally don't see a single other person is a surreal experience on its own. You know, it, it, it's kind of you're in the middle of, of I Am Legend. Um, and it is, it, I said this multiple times during those two weeks, and Sheldon can testify this, that, it, you know, kind of something would happen, and I would say, this is just like a military deployment. And, and, and it was very much like a military deployment, but, but if you deployed, like, into the middle of the highest volume period in Baghdad or Afghanistan. Uh, so, so, in many ways, this, this was very much like a military deployment, um, both the good things and the bad things. Uh, they had a great team there, and they were they were all very you know laser focused on one objective, and that was to take care of these patients and to do what it took, and and that really pulls people together. Uh, and that's not just the docs, it's the nurses, respiratory therapists, ward clerks, etc. Um, there there were hard choices. You know, there was there was certainly triage. You know, there were certainly rationing decisions. Uh, there was making making do with less. There was altering your standard operating procedures. Uh, you know, if you if if it takes you maybe twenty four hours to get a chest X ray, you know, you you do things a little differently. It takes you maybe a couple of days to get a CAT scan. You do things a little differently. Uh, and, and and probably the biggest aspect of it, and and Joe, you know this too. You've had multiple deployments. Was it, it was very much Groundhog Day. Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of variation. Every day was the same. You know, Sheldon and I would meet in the morning, go in. We would, you know, have a little staff meeting and then have vent rounds. And every patient was so-and-so-year-old admitted with COVID pneumonia. Next patient, so-and-so-year-old admitted with COVID pneumonia. Uh, and just ICU patient after ICU patient. Uh, so, so it was very similar. And I think, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the same lessons learned. And, and I think they've... The people who are going through this, especially in New York, very much, you know, have now had a a combat deployment experience. Yeah. Joe, can we can we sit with that for a second? Because I, I, if you wouldn't mind, I, please Matt do. Gave me so much help with this. So, Matt, you, what you taught me, and you were so um, gentle with me because I, I had, uh, you know, Matt, Matt was my. I used to say he was my military attaché as I was walk around. People, people, people really thought Matt had been assigned, you know, by the military to be at my side. I used it. I used it to great advantage. But um, there were, and they were also very jealous. Why does Why does Tepperman get his own military attaché? What the hell? <laughs> so, um, but there are a couple other lessons, Matt, that you taught me vis-a-vis similarities to your military appointment, and it had a lot to do with, you know, um, what. Well, emotional stuff, right? The sense of isolation. And then the second thing would be the command and control. And just because I'm pooped out here, you, you know the two things I'm talking about, you know, the, the meeting in the morning, but just the, the emotional thing, Matt, because uh, can we talk about that for a moment? Sure. Yeah, I guess so, my question for both of you would be, I mean, this it sounds like a very, very much a, PTSD type inducing arrangement for a lot of people who are not used to those kind of things. Is that going to be a burden? And how do we how do we cope with people real time and afterwards with that? 
I'm going to let you move with that, Matt, since you have sort of better eyes on it. And I'm still in it. Yeah, and, and we've we've actually talked about this a, a little bit. Uh, and, and you're right. It, this is, I think we're going to see, you know, we're seeing the bulk of this now. And, and this thing's going to have a long tail. And that tail is going to include a lot of chronically ill post-ICU syndrome patients, chronic vent patients, uh, and that's one tail we're going to have to deal with. And then the other tail that we talked about is it's probably going to have a long tail in terms of mental health issues uh, for, you know, for everyone who's involved. And, and there's, there's often a misperception, and Joe, you know this just like anyone else, you know, a misperception that you, know, you really got to look for the PTSD and intervene during these high-stress scenarios. And, and it's usually, that's usually not when they manifest. Because like I said, you have the benefit of you're with a team, everybody's sharing this experience, there's plenty of people you can talk to about it, it's after things go quote-unquote back to normal. Yeah. So when things go back to normal and the team disbands and now everybody's focused on you know elective cases or whatever their job is, and, and that's when people can, one, start to really think about some of the things that happened, two, they don't have that team around them and that shared sense of purpose, uh, and, and three, you know, hopefully we can try to avoid it, but they feel isolated. And that's when the problems really manifest. And, yeah. and that's really what, what I would be worried about. And, and that's when we really need to watch watch our people. Yeah, no, and, I completely and, agree. And especially the younger, less experienced people, you know, because I mean, we're or at least I'm, I'm an old, jaded, old trauma surgeon. But, you know, if we think about those young nurses, young, you know, respiratory therapists, young medics, you know, who really haven't seen much, much like this. And then they're, they're overwhelmed and just surrounded by, you know, death, dying, misery, and chronic illness. This, this could have a huge effect on them. I think you condition yourself to some degree to be able to deal with it. And these people didn't have the advantage of that. I know when I think about the things that really sometimes keep me up at night, it's from my first tour, my second tour, not seven or eight. Uh, You just you get that sense of coping mechanism that is going to be hard for people to acquire. But it's going to be interesting to see how people respond as this thing prolongs. Um, Just uh, so with Matt, just one more thing about deployment similarities. So. I, I had come to the idea that periodically I would be meeting with the faculty. And remember, again, I became the chair of surgery. And actually, I just handed back the department today pretty much to my wonderful boss, John McNellis, who's a much better chair than I am. But since he was a patient on our own COVID ICU, he couldn't exactly, and pretty sick, didn't get intubated, but he couldn't exactly be the chair. So, you know, Matt helped me with some lessons about leading this group. I mean, you know, yes, I'm the head of the trauma center, but I was not the the chair of surgery. And and one of the things that that he talked about and we did put into place more formally was a meeting with everybody first thing in the morning. So I don't know, it's about eight or eventually it was about eight or nine faculty members roughly. And, um, and we would meet every people would go over their patients quickly and then we'd run into the office and we would do about 20 minutes to a half hour. And it had, the facility of, of giving us a look forward for the day, but also had the advantage of having each faculty member who were at various states, are at various stages of their career, the ability to communicate um, what their issues were, what their concerns were, maybe, you know, what 
what their kind of emotional home issues were. Uh, and to get all that out in the open and to understand that they had been heard first thing in the morning without having to carry forward, you know, sort of, um, I don't know, a chip or a complaint. And that, uh, that worked to great advantage, I think. Matt? Oh, oh yeah, I agree. I mean, that's, I, I can't, I can't emphasize that enough of trying to have a daily meeting, you know, first thing, and it doesn't have to be long, but, but everybody says, here's what I'm doing. Here's what's going on. Here's a problem I'm having. Or, or, you know, here's, here's some problem I'm facing today. And then someone else in the group says, Oh, you know, I, I'm not that heavy today. I can, I can help you out with that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I just think that's, that's just a great way to start the day and, and make sure people again, aren't off, you know, getting, getting isolated, getting overwhelmed and, and they just feel alone. Yeah. Well, um, let me ask you, Sheldon, about uh, we see horrendous things on the news about supply shortages, right? What's the ground truth where you folks are at? And uh, is that getting better? Is it worse? And how are you overcoming that? So I heard this guy on 60 Minutes when he was asked about Donald Trump saying that doctors are stealing PPE. (laughs) Say uh, he chuckled and said, oh, he should come visit New York. The weather's just bomb me this time of year. I'll, I'll show him. So that was, I'm kidding. That of course was me. And it was a, you know, that was a difficult question because obviously it makes one very angry. You know, obviously we were not eating the PPE, but look at the beginning of this, you know, I was on a call with, you know, so I'm also the system trauma medical director for New York city health and hospitals. Um, so, you know, that's Bellevue, Kings County, Lincoln, Elmhurst, uh, ourselves, and um, and I was on a call. I don't know, maybe six weeks ago now. Before this thing started, we talked about how each pa- we would have an N95 for each patient affected. There would be 15 N95s per day per patient, uh, and that was you know, and that was uh, thought to be the minimum, right? And to this moment, as it is, there is. One N95. There was at a certain point there was one N95 per provider per week. <laughs> Do you see yeah. many orders of magnitude different? Now it's down to maybe an N95 per provider per day, with perhaps a hundred patient interactions during that day. So, you know, a long answer to your to, uh, to your question, Joe, is. Who, in God's name, be it us, be it be it the president, who could have figured out that we would have needed that quantity of PPE? There would have been no. So it's in some ways it's no one's fault, right? There would have been no way to have gamed out that you know we thought we needed a hundred thousand and we needed a billion. And quite frankly, there there was there isn't enough supply chain in the world to have obtained that level of PPE. So. There became this necessity, and of course, the CDC changed it, which changed its rules. It went from you know from uh, droplet to just contact, and you know it was also was pointed out on that sixty minutes uh, segment that that wasn't a scientific decision. That was just you know necessity being the mother of invention, right? They had to do that with really no information about exactly why we were all getting sick. So. 
I would also say that, you know, New York City Health and Hospital, so I've been, I talk to the supply chain people. That is to say the senior VP for, um, you know, for supply chain is a good friend of mine and a, just a lovely, lovely man. And those guys are spending 24-7 trying to help us. But there is, you know, we, we made some mistakes, right? A, a lot of stuff uh, is, is made overseas. There's only two mass companies manufacturing companies, you know, in, in the continental United States, that was a mistake. So, you know, for this go around, we did as good as we can. It was not good enough. And it, so, and one last part of the question is you actually have to get into it yourself. If you're involved in leading a large group, you just can't leave the supply chain issue to, you know, the quartermaster, you yourself have to go to the general and make sure your team is getting what you need. Just a funny story is, uh, you know, I used my ill-gotten fame to um, to sort of parry the, 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 the needs of the group. So I would take this wonderful woman, Sadie Redway, I'm sure Matt remembers her. She's She was the sort of quartermaster for the little ICU, and they wouldn't so that the people in the warehouse wouldn't give her stuff. So we, I'd lock arms with Sadie and say, come with me. And I do a little, I do some appearances, I do some autographs, and she and I would steal away with whatever the, the need of the day was. So ABG syringes or or triple lumen catheters, and we would we would go down there, we'd, we'd spend some time with the supply folks who were wonderful. You know, I, I'd literally give them some love, and we'd run away with armfuls of stuff. So, I mean... You got to do whatever it takes to get your people the stuff that it is required. Sheldon, you'd, you'd have made a fine special forces supply officer. I can tell you that much. <laughs> uh, let me ask you a question both in turn here. I'll start with Matt on this one. Sometimes the greatest challenges often give birth to the greatest ingenuity in both large and small forms. So give me one example of some ingenuity in, in the context of this insanity that sticks with you at present. Yeah, and, and I actually that actually dovetails with the last question too about PPE, and and I think there's there's been a lot of focus obviously everywhere on we need to stock up we need to stock up more on PPE we need to have more masks we need to have more gowns and not as much focus at least in my opinion on well there's a whole bunch of ways that you can decrease your use and requirement for PPE and avoid wastage. And, and that will have as big or even more of a bang for your buck as, you know, trying to just continuously stock up, stock up, because if you're wasting it, you're never going to get ahead. So so they, they did some, you know, very forward thinking things to avoid wasting PPE and, that, and unnecessary trips in and out of rooms and unnecessary patient contact, which also decreases the risk, hopefully, of healthcare workers catching COVID, especially the nurses and my providers. So, so like Sheldon just mentioned, putting, getting the extension tubing and putting the IV pumps out of the room. Uh, I mean, just right there, just think of how many times, you know, those things start to beep and your drip runs out. And then someone has to put on full PPE, go into the room to push one button or to change a drip. So, so doing that right there has a huge effect on minimizing contact, minimizing PPE, uh, if you have the ventilators where you can detach the control set and have that mounted outside the room, that's another thing that will decrease the number of times you have to go in and out of the room just to change the vent setting. Uh, and, and then the other 
the other thing I think is, you know, just doing things a little smarter. So a patient comes in and they get admitted, you don't, you don't PP up, go in, put a central line in. And then later on, someone realizes, oh, we need an A line. Someone else PPs up, goes in, does that. It's, you know, you do everything once. So a team jumps on them when they get admitted and, and everybody gets central line, A line, you know, sometimes they need a dialysis line, you know, all done at once, you know, with one or two people with one or two sets of PPE. Yeah. So, so th- those are the kind of, uh, you know, just smart things that, that were done that I think had the dual effect of helping with the supply issue and avoiding unnecessary uh, people contracting the disease. Sheldon, any other kind of ingenuity examples that you would add? Yeah, first the concept, and then and then the specifics. So uh, I would say uh, Matt will probably agree that I broke some rules <laughs> during this event, um, and and uh, which is in tandem with this in, the ingenuity thing, right? So you got to have somebody that's willing to break some rules because, like peacetime rules and wartime rules are very, very different. And what is a, like Matt gave the example of how quickly we got his um, credentials done. So um, you got to have someone with eyes on that because there are lots of folks through maybe no fault of their own, maybe occasionally fault of their own that are very, let's just say, officious. And they want to do things the way things were done in peacetime, which, you know, would maybe take five weeks and you've got five minutes so and this is just this this is sort of a corollary to your question i'll get to the specific of it it's also just i think a good emergency preparedness paradigm which is if you're running an effort like this you have to be in the room with the decision makers so and, and matt knows this because i would take him often certainly in the beginning of his tour of duty into the rooms with the decision makers because if they're, you know, they often decision makers not through no fault of their own and also because the leadership of the hospital appropriately was trying to not get the disease. So they were not going into the clinical spaces. So there was this massive disconnect, right, because they didn't have eyes on. And so I, I was their eyes. And because I was in those rooms and, and actually because my chair was sick, I was able to get them, you know, to do ingenuity things that they ordinarily never, never, never would have done. So one concrete example is very early on, I was noticing that we attempted to put COVID patients behind closed doors, which you should do, by the way, if that you should definitely do that before things fall apart. COVID patients should be behind closed doors, right? Makes sense. They should not be pluming into the general environment. And you should not cede the ground on that issue until you have thought of every conceivable possible thing. Do not. Do not let them plume into the general environment. That is undoubtedly why so many of us at health and hospitals have died. So one specific example, Joe, is we built walls in two days. So Matt knows because he spent too much time in this unit, the same day unit. So same day surgery, right, was an open curtained room, and in you know which had full gas capability and full monitoring. Well, eventually full monitoring capability, but no doors. 
So we built in the space of 48 hours. We completely enclosed those spaces because we had a wonderful engineering team in like real walls and real doors. And each room had a plexiglass window. And, and then we could put these patients that had a deadly virus that would bloom into the air behind a closed door. And we got that done in 48 hours. Didn't we, Matt? It was oh, already yeah. there when you got there. That's right. Yep. Sheldon, I have some house repairs. Can you uh, come? You get those guys uh, come see me? It's going to be a while. Um, let me ask you, for the sake of time, one more question before we kind of proceed to our uh, kind of random questions at the end here. If I had to ask each of you, give me the top three lessons, one sentence each, three lessons that you would tell people uh, in managing COVID patients, what would they be? And I'll start because Sheldon's the more verbose. I'll start with Matt. Do you mean three clinical lessons? Yep, yep. Your managed lessons learned in managing COVID patients. Whatever you would tell somebody, you get to tell somebody three sentences okay. before they go to New York and Sheldon. Tell them the three things in a sentence each. What you would tell them? Oh, good. I get to go first. I get the easy part. Uh, number one: uh, avoid intubation at all costs, but but be prepared when they absolutely do need it. But we, we so avoid intubation. Use all your all of your adjuncts if possible because innovation has a high correlation with mortality. Uh, number two would be prepare your nephrologists and dialysis teams. There's an incredibly high incidence of acute kidney injury and need for hemodialysis and CVVH and other filtrations. Uh, and number three is these patients chew up sedation like it's no one's business. So, so you need to have a plan for that, and you need to rotate your agents. Uh, otherwise, that will be your next supply shortage. Okay. Sheldon, your turn. So I'm going to repeat. One of them has to be repeated, and that is to say the non-invasive ventilation. So you got to figure that you got to figure that out ahead of time, and you need a tremendous amount of machines, so BiPAP and uh, high flow. And you've, you've got to have a lot of supply for that, so the, the circuits for that. So, again, non-based ventilation. And then, you know, in this emergency, the whole question of the storm, the D-dimers, and the anticoagulation, you should be following all the national feeds and decide ahead of time. So it's a very aggressive, very, very aggressive anticoagulation before the clot forms, just as you're seeing... Uh, the DFD dimers start to go up. So you should look all that up in the feeds that we've been participating in and figure that out and decide uh, ahead of time. And then finally, the investigational drugs. So the investigational drugs are complicated. They sort of um, they, they sort of can get in the clinical path in the wrong moments. They need to be deployed. Probably none of them are working. And how that's going to be done and who's going to be in charge of them, how you're going to get the consents and how they're going to be deployed. There needs to be a, a good group of scientists that work well with the clinical team. That needs to be figured out before you get into this. 
Good stuff. Great pearls, guys. Well, listen, as part of our podcast, we typically close with some questions that are completely unrelated to the science of trauma care, the topic at hand. And we've dealt with a pretty dark, deep topic today. But these questions allow us people that, to get to know the guests like I know you guys. You're great, both great guys. And I know you have tons of life lessons to share. You have uh, interesting backgrounds, both professional and personal. So if you guys are ready, I'm going to ask you our random questions. And you can answer in turn. We'll start with Sheldon this time. So, All right. Sheldon. When they make the movie of the New York COVID response starring actors depicting you and Matt, who will play Matt? Well, this is the hardest question that I've been asked today. Okay. So James, my, my partner James and I are going back and forth. So it's either Zsa Zsa Gabor because <laughs> uh, <or laughs> he's got those curly locks. Or it's Christian Bale, but we're going with Christian Bale because of uh, of Matt's uh, you know sort of gotcha. gentle uh, greatness and uh, and his fetching appearance. So a pre Batman kind of Christian Christian Bale. Got <laughs> yes. it. Yes. Uh, Matt, your turn. This is a tough one. Who 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 would play Sheldon? I, I think it has to be one of the Baldwin brothers. Uh, he's not quite an Alex, probably Stephen with that blonde hair. Uh, he's definitely one, not one of the uh, lesser Baldwin brothers, so it has to be Alex or Stephen. So I'm going to go with Stephen Baldwin. Fair enough. Sounds like a great movie. I'm, I can't wait to see it. Um, so, guys, if they, let's say they invent a vaccine next week, miraculously, it cures all COVID, and everybody gets a week off next week to go anywhere free of charge. It's part of our government relief system. Um, Matt, I'll start with you. Where are you going to go? What would you do? I'm going to take my wife and kids and go to Belize. Ah, beautiful location. What about you, Sheldon? I'm going to um, the lake house where the famous picture of me and Matt in the hot tub originates. (laughs) And I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, hug my sweet, beautiful James and never let go. Uh, also sounds like a great, great way to go. Stay close to loved ones. Um, you guys have both been some adversity, some trying times. You're certainly not alone. We can look around and into hospitals right now and see a lot of people going through a lot of stuff. Um, but you've both of you seem to figure out ways to cope. So give us, uh, you know, short answer advice on what are the coping mechanisms that you worked for you, Sheldon. I would say get yourself a friend whose name is Matt Martin. <laughs> no, he said he said methods that work. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in addition, you know, so it, it's again the deployment thing. I mean, my my group is amazing, and you know, we, we you know, there's been you know, occasionally there's some friction, but I, I'm so I am buoyed up by the the. Uh, the, the fearless professionalism that my partners demonstrated and the loyalty they demonstrated to me and hopefully vice versa. Uh, I, I would say the single greatest part of my coping coping was the fact that we, we went into this fire together. Matt. Yeah. Along those lines is you know, have, have good colleagues and, you know, and we're fortunate I was fortunate to work with Sheldon and his great team there. We're fortunate to have, you know, just great colleagues in a close-knit community nationwide. You know, Bilal Joseph started this WhatsApp group. 
that there's 200 and something of us on and and people are constantly posting questions or new studies. Uh, and, and I think just having that sense of community goes a long way. And, and then, you know, most importantly is stay close to your family. And, and sometimes there's, there's a, a thought that you really have to shut them out of this. Uh, but, but I would just say, you know, your, your family should be your strongest support during things like this. And, and that's how hopefully we prevent that long tail that I suspect we're going to see of PTSD, moral injury, and other mental health problems. Yeah. Well, this has been the the, the first true cross country podcast for this. You know, our trauma podcast. We got we're talking to you from New York and San Diego at the moment. So let's close with a brief debate question designed to compare and contrast the two. So I'm going to ask you both, and I'll start with Sheldon. Who has better food, San Diego or New York? And if you were going to put your star dish up against whatever Matt can come up with from San Diego, what are you going to put on the table? Well, ordinarily, I would say pizza. But if I see one more slice of pizza, <laughs> I'm going to vomit. But I'm going with pizza. So the pizza industry in New York is not suffering, is what you're saying? Not at all. <laughs> Fair enough. Matt? Yeah, I'm going to say that's an easy one. New York has better food. Okay. Well, you just completely concede. You let them get over on your position, huh? I, and now realizing I'm a Jersey boy at heart. I, I completely concede. I, I miss my New York, New Jersey pizza, bagels, and cheesesteaks out here in California. Fair <laughs> enough. We, I'd forgotten you were a California transplant and have no lifelong loyalty to the region. So, <laughs> Well, guys, listen, thanks so much for both of you. I know you – and thanks for everything you've done and for spending a little time with us. I know you're both exhausted and you've been through a lot. And with that, I'll close. This has been an episode of the Trauma Podcast, and we thank our guests for joining us. And please partake of other offerings anywhere that you consume podcasts. Mm-hmm.